Welcome to Free and Fearless, the story of the first parole trial. Episode 2, The Process. This is the second episode of a three-part series about the first parole trial, which took place in the Netherlands during the Second World War. Thirteen people were executed by firing squad on the 5th of February 1943 for their role in printing, producing, and distributing the illegal anti-Nazi newspaper Het Parole. 75 years later, we were given access to these men's final letters, written two hours before their sentences were carried out. What emerged as we dug deeper into their stories was this podcast series. In the previous episode, we explored how, shortly after the invasion of the Netherlands in May 1940, the young men of a disbanded socialist youth organization called the Arbeiters Jocht Centrale had formed into a resistance network led by a man named Ari Adix. He became connected with an older man named Franz Goodhart along with his friends from the AJC, such as Jan Zwanenberg and Rob Dalmer, the Artix group became heavily involved in distributing Het Parole around Amsterdam. By mid-September 1941, however, they were well and truly on the radar of the Dutch police, who were operating in collaboration with and under the direction of the SS. An attempt had been made to arrest Ari Uddix, from which he had escaped. In the process, however, his father had been shot and killed. At the funeral, the police had blocked the procession, arrested people, and Ari had had to pay tribute to his father from the back of a motorbike, merely passing by. Immediately after running away from the police in his house, he had managed to lay low in the house of fellow AJCer Van Marek on Antoni Cornelisstraat in the city's south. His network of comrades such as Jan Zwanenberg and Rob Dalmer had mustered to help him, and during that time they sought to find him refuge in the country's east and possibly help him escape to England thereafter. Addix, however, refused. When he was hiding after the botched arrest, Addix had met Buter, his friend from the AJC, who had previously mentioned to Ari at his house that he had wanted to stop with his resistance activity because he was getting too nervous. Addix was extremely distressed, having just witnessed his father being shot at point-blank range in the neck and escaping under fire from the clutches of those he had been resisting so fiercely for so long. Buter watched his friend and perhaps saw someone who was acting heroically, standing up to the oppressor, fighting with police, and was now a fugitive on the run. The two men must have cut quite the contrast. Ari Uddix and his brave escapades set against the nervous and unwilling Buter. Almost immediately after this meeting, on the 2nd or 3rd of September, Buter did something rather peculiar. He sat down and wrote an anonymous letter to the police in which he mentioned the resistance work of one H. Buter himself. 
Why he did this is anyone's guess. Maybe it was out of jealousy. Maybe he just snapped under the pressure of constantly being on the wrong side of the law. There are also suggestions that he had a mental disability, which might have had an impact on his judgment. Whatever the reason, what is certain is that this was an act that would ensure the demise of the addicts group. On the 4th, police picked up Buter at his work, acting on the anonymous letter he had sent incriminating himself. One of the officers who brought him in was a policeman who would gain much infamy for his actions during the war. His name was Martin Cowper. He was the same guy who had shot Addix's father in the neck. Later on in the war, he would kill the renowned resistance fighter, Honey Shaft. But he would also arrest, on a separate occasion, a young Jewish girl named Anna Frank. This guy was just a real nasty Nazi. Buter was taken in for questioning at the new Adulastrat and then sent to the Oterpastrat, a location which had already gained a reputation as the most dangerous street in the city for a person in the resistance. It was the home to the Sicherheitsdienst, which we will just from now on refer to as the SD, and the Gestapo, and the Sicherheitspolizei, the security police. It was essentially a one-stop shop strip mall where you can get anything you want, just so long as you were in the market for the very worst Nazi institutions. Upon questioning, Buter gave them apparently no useful information about Uddix, but the police were able to come up with a use for him. On the day Ari Uddix escaped, another of the Uddix group, Nico Snyders, had been arrested at his workplace. During his questioning, Buter mentioned that he knew Snyders and also knew of his arrest. The police decided to use him as an agent provocateur. Buter was to be put into a cell with him to glean as much information as possible. In the cell, in which several prisoners were held, Snyders would have heard the key being inserted into the door lock and the creak of the hinges as it swung open. Buter was thrust forward and fell on the hard concrete floor. They all looked up at him, and Snyders would have recognised him immediately. We don't know what the exact exchange was between them, then or for the following nine days they spent together. Buter told Snyders that he'd been beaten by the police, presumably to gain his trust. Snyders' trust, however, was not forthcoming. He and the other prisoners forced Buter out of his clothes, and by exposing his unblemished and unbeaten skin, also exposed his lies and betrayal. Snyders did not give him any information. After his nine days of failed espionage, Buter was released and ordered to gather more information on Uddix and the group. Meanwhile, members of the Uddix group, such as Jan Zwanenberg and Rob Daumer, were thinking of what to do next. After some failed attempts, they had been able to secure a hiding place for Ari Uddix in the Beluva, in the east of the country. But he had refused to go there. Uddix had been concerned that his mother, now alone after the murder of her husband and the escape of her now-fugitive son, might be kidnapped 
and used as a bargaining chip in an attempt to lure him out of hiding. So with Adix lying low in Amsterdam, the others just went about their business. We can assume that after the arrests of Snyders, Adix and Buter, that the other members of the group must have realized that the noose around them was tightening. But although some of them spent a night or two away from their homes as a precaution, none of them fully dived under, as they most certainly should have. After Buter's release from jail, he was able to find out that there was a planned meeting to take place on the evening of the 16th of September, on the corner of the Van Reichers Berkenstraat and the Hugo de Grootkade. Present would be, amongst others, Ari Uddix, Jan Zwanenberg, and Rob Daumer. Buter dutifully informed the police about it. By this stage, Uddix was considered armed and dangerous, and a photograph of him was circulating in the Alchemain Polizzi Darkblad. It warned that one should expect resistance when attempting to arrest him. Considering this was a man whose favorite hobby at the best of times was beating up Nazis, and that he was now out looking for revenge on those who had killed his father, it was definitely a legitimate warning. Dalma lived nearby the planned meeting point on the Frederick Hendrickstraat, so Dalma, Zwanenberg, and a few others decided to gather there first, before going to see Uddix. They must have been anxious when Zwanenberg still hadn't arrived, 10 minutes after the time they'd planned. When he finally appeared at the door, though, he was nervous and agitated. He said that he had gone to the meeting point in order to check that everything was safe and that he had seen quite a lot of suspicious-looking men around there. He thought that it was a trap and that if they didn't do anything, Ari would be arrested. They had to go and warn him, help him do anything they could to save their friend. As they approached the meeting point, however, they realized that they were too late. Ari Uddix was already there, and everything began to happen quickly. As the Germans approached Uddix, he realized he was in a trap, and he jumped on his bicycle to try to get away. As he pedaled, he pulled a gun out, and shots rang out across the street. Uddix was able to flee, but he left in his wake a soon-to-be-dead German plainclothes policeman on the ground in the Van Haveningenstraat. Up until this point, the war that the Addicts group had been waging against the occupiers had been one of information. Through their efforts stenciling, duplicating, and distributing leaflets and newspapers, as well as defacing German propaganda posters, they had been harming the Nazis' attempts to build a narrative that put themselves in the winning light. As damaging as that might be, however, this act of violence crossed a new threshold. One of them had now killed a German. Their actions could no longer be seen as just the youthful exuberance of young men, kids almost, trying to stir trouble. They were now enemy combatants. After witnessing the shootout, Zwanenberg, Dalma, and the others had gone their separate ways and dispersed back to their homes. A poor decision. That was the last time most of them would meet as free men. That evening, Buter was again arrested, having been suspected of acting as a double agent and perhaps tipping off Uddix about the arrest plan. 
Later that same night, Zonenberg, Dalma and his father, and Hank Rose and another, D. Voss, were arrested in their homes. As Hank Rose would later say, I was taken from my bed at night. They came with seven men. The prisoners were taken to the dreaded Oterpestrad, and they were locked up in the cells of a cold, wet cellar. Paired up, they frantically whispered to each other about what they should say, trying to get their story straight. The question that would have dominated all of their minds, doubtless would have been, where did we go wrong? Over the next few days, they would be interrogated for more information that the SD could use to take down Het Parole and its network. In the interrogations, they had evidence, photos, testimonies and other stuff put before them, huddled at tables in blank rooms with bright spotlights shining in their faces, Nazis peering down demandingly over them. The authorities knew so much that all of the prisoners must have wondered where or from whom all the information had come. Going from relative freedom to brutal imprisonment was sudden, and the question of how it had happened was confusing. In the three days they were held, they were given water twice and only once received something to eat, which was a small portion of potato salad. They would have been very hungry, thirsty, scared, and wholly uncertain of what awaited them. These conditions would never improve. After the initial interrogations at the Oterpestrad, they were taken to the House von Bewahring, the House of Custody at the Veteringskans. Here they were given their first opportunity to write to their families to inform them about where they were, what had happened, and about the huge change in circumstances that had come over them in the last three days. Imagine if you were in this situation, what would be the primary thing that you would want to tell your family? At this stage, you've been confronted with the hardships of the interrogations. You'd be really hungry, dirty, tired, and confused. You also wouldn't really know if or how often you'd get another chance to communicate with the outside world and request things. The youngest of the prisoners, Karl Wittmond, at just 17, recalled later how... During the days that they were held there, he just cried. Jan Zvannenberg scribbled out the following on a postcard, probably in a rush, and thinking only about his basic priorities. Dear parents, I am hereby letting you know that I am in prison on the Veteringskans. Please send as soon as possible clean underwear, stockings, pants, and a shirt. Also a piece of soap toothpaste and a toothbrush. Nothing else. Greetings to everyone. So coming towards the end of September 1941, Ari Adix was in hiding in Amsterdam after having killed a policeman on the street. Jan Zwanenberg, Rob Dalma and the others from the Adix group had been arrested, interrogated and were now sitting in prison. The members of their group not imprisoned now reacted in different ways. Some dived under and went into hiding in other parts of the country, while others continued to lay low in the city. Suffice it to say, many were not able to remain hidden for long. The arrests continued for the following months, and by February 1942, the Arctic group ceased to exist as a functioning organized resistance. Ari Arctic himself 
was also found and arrested by the SD on the 27th of September 1941. The police had discovered that he was going to be at a house on the Vesperzeit in the city centre. The green uniformed Ordnungspolizei, or the Order Police, which if that isn't the most terrifyingly fascist name for an organisation, then I don't know what is, locked down the neighbourhood and Although Ari tried again to make one of his classic jujitsu based roof-to-ground fleeing manoeuvres, this time, he could not escape. He was not taken to the same prison as that which some of his compatriots were being held in, but to Schäfeningen, nearby The Hague. Ari Addix had been the leader of a resistance organisation and had worked non-stop to counter the German propaganda machine. He had escaped arrest twice, and most damningly, he shot and killed a German police officer. He was now going to be made an example of. Addix was interrogated heavily in Schäfeningen. He was put through the kind of blink-or-you'll-miss-it kangaroo court that you would expect from Nazis, and he was sentenced to death three times over. Nonetheless, he was thinking about how he had been caught, and of who may have informed upon him. He was allowed a visit by his mum, a final visit. She would recount later that during this he had leant in and whispered in her ear, Do you know who betrayed me? Buta. How Uddix had come to this opinion, we don't know for sure. But we do know that it had been suspected already amongst the AJCers in the Uddix group, that Buter had been working against them. So convinced were Jan Zwannenberg's mate Philip Heil and Nico Snyder's brother Kor of Buter's treachery that after hearing of Ari and Nico's arrests, they had fetched a German bayonet, gone to Buter's house and hidden in front of his front door. Had he returned, they planned to pin him to his door with it. Buter is a complicated case. After the war, he was tried for helping the enemy and found to be not responsible for his actions due to his mental state. Clearly, his friends amongst the AJCers did not realise how vulnerable their relationship with Buter would make them all. After the war, however, they would never forget what they saw as treachery done to them all. On the 7th of October... While he was waiting in his cell for a response to the clemency that he had requested, Ari Addix began to write a farewell letter. It puts on full display how anxious, terrified, and uncertain he was about what awaited him. He wrote about his plight, worked for freedom. For this, I had to pay a very high price. Death was the wager, and I lost. The enemy now decides my fate. I fervently hope that he gives me my life. For him, it is nothing. For me, it is everything and the only thing. It is terrible, this uncertainty. Will I get clemency or not? Oh, the uncertainty. I hope that the people who are going over my clemency request are noble people who will decide my case in a mild and humane manner. For God's sake and for my mother's, let me live. In an emergency, one learns how to pray. This also applies to me. 
Ari's farewell letter was obviously composed and added to over several hours. While it begins with him still waiting and hoping desperately to hear whether he had been granted the miracle of a reprieve, it concludes abruptly. Clemency request rejected on 7th of October, 41. After some time, Jan Zwannenberg, Rob Dalmer, and others were transported from their prison at the Veteringskans to one on the Amstelfeinsewech. Being kept prisoner inside a building for uncertain periods was somewhat predictable. The confines of your world are fairly small and not much would happen as you waited. You'd just be hoping that they fed you. Hunger and thirst would have come to dominate the minds of these men as well as the fear of another interrogation. One day, however, their doors opened and they were told to stand. Guards chained them up mustered them together, and they were moved outside and put in a van, which then began to drive away. This would have been a fairly disruptive thing, suddenly brought into the light of the outdoors to be taken somewhere else completely unknown. All the anxiety that comes with not knowing your fate would certainly have been present in the minds of them all, even the cool and collected Rob Dalma. However, as they passed through town, and were able to catch what may be their last glimpses of the outside world for a long time. Their attention was drawn to one particular poster that they started to see all over the place. Just like the posters that they and their friends had plastered around town in defiance of the regime during the summer of 1940. This poster was on walls, posts, and doors. It was an official announcement. At a traffic junction, the van stopped long enough for them to read what was written on it. It stated, The Dutch national AT addicts from Amsterdam has been sentenced to death by a war court of the SS and police for committing an act of violence against a member of the German police and for the forbidden possession of weapons. The sentence has been carried out. And so they found out that Ari Adix had been executed. The news would have caused mixed emotions for everyone who knew him. He had been volatile and had even become such a security risk that some of them had argued for liquidating him to protect their resistance operations. However, for those who had known him from youth, had been part of the AJC with him and trained in jiu-jitsu with him, no matter how they saw his character, they would have been struck by how close to home and very real this now was. For those who found out about it while being transferred from prison to prison that day, if the fact that they were prisoners had not fully impressed upon them how much trouble they were in, the fact that one of them was being publicly declared executed as an enemy of the state most certainly would have. Between September 1941 and April 1942, over 20 people were arrested in connection with the distribution and production of Het Parole in the Netherlands. Jaap Melkman, who as you'll remember from the last episode, had been friends with Ari Adix's parents, was one of those arrested in February 1942. It had been he who had introduced Franz Goodhart 
the man who had been making the news brief on Peter at Hun and had co-founded Het Parole to Ari Artix. It was through this connection that the Artix group had come to distribute the news brief and then Het Parole. The night that Dalma, Zvonenberg and others had been arrested after they had gone to meet Ari, Melkman had made a sensible decision and dived under. He found a hiding place through the brother of a man who was actively distributing Het Parole. But after being on the run for four months, narrowly escaping capture several times, Melkman was finally also caught and sent to the Veteringskans prison. Melkman's identity had, it is believed, become known to the SD through the arrest and interrogation of the Zwanenberg and Dalma group on the 16th of September. They had immediately raided his house, but he had already gone into hiding. At the exact same time as the house was being raided, Franz Goodhart had decided to call in. When he arrived, instead of being met by his friend, he was welcomed by the authorities and shown into the living room, where about a dozen other people were sitting, awaiting questioning. He was told to sit, and had now become an attendee at pretty much the worst surprise party ever, hosted by Nazis. This was a widely used tactic when arrests were made on members of the underground resistance. When an active address was identified, officers would often just go and occupy the house. They would then simply wait and arrest anybody who came in, holding them for questioning. Now imagine Franz Goodhart sitting on the couch in his associate's living room, surrounded by 12 other anxious and scared people, awaiting the moment when his enemy with their guns will ask him what the hell he is doing there. Even more terrifyingly, he had a false identification card on him, which would surely get him into trouble. As he sat there, the cardboard ID, with small photograph attached, burned a hole in his pocket. He cast his eyes over everyone and everything in the room. There were fewer police than people waiting to be questioned. They could not keep an eye on everybody at once. He considered what he could do. The solution that he settled on was practical, if not necessarily easy. He would have to eat it. There could be problems with this plan. Maybe his mouth had gone dry with his nervousness. But nevertheless, he felt he had no choice. So in moments when nobody was watching, Goodhart ripped up his ID card, scrunched the pieces up in as inconspicuous a manner as he could, and shoved them into his mouth. He wouldn't have wanted to be seen chewing or doing anything out of the ordinary, like eating cardboard. However tense a meal it may have been, he managed to consume the whole thing. When it came time for him to be questioned, Goodhart showed his ability to talk himself out of a sticky situation. Without going too much into the complicated details, a company had been set up called De Mercure, which the parole group could use as their cover. He said he was a traveling salesman for De Mercure, who had come to discuss washing powder with Yarp Melkman's wife, who was conveniently a shop owner. The officials bought this story and let him go. He had eaten and blagged his way out of trouble, for now. Shaken by the experience, he went home 
destroyed a bunch of incriminating evidence, and promptly went into hiding, where he would continue planning and plotting to make Het Parole bigger, and to continue to attack the false narratives of the occupiers. Over the next months, he would hear of the arrests of Ari Adix, Zwanenberg, Dalma, Melkman, and the others. As the initial distributors of the paper were imprisoned, however, others would stand up and take their place. So during all of it, Het Parole kept printing and kept being distributed. Goodhart had a lot of ideas and felt that they were worth sharing. And he was not the only one. There were many people actively engaged in the war on thought, and many of those felt that they had identified aspects of the Dutch political and social systems prior to the war that had allowed for Nazification to take hold easier than it should have. Many felt that the war would not last that long. Although the Nazis rule now, they would soon be defeated and the future after National Socialism must be planned and prepared for. The question of how to gird future Dutch society against the rise and grip of fascism was discussed, even while that grip still tightened. Goodhart wanted to take his ideas, as well as copies of Het Parole, to the Dutch government, now exiled in England. Over the winter of 1941-42, many attempts were being made to get several high-level members of Dutch political and cultural society to England to report on the situation in the Netherlands and to contribute to the ideological battlefront. Goodhart worked hard to get on one of these boats and was eventually granted the chance. There are many complicated aspects, events, characters and ideas connected with Goodhart's endeavour to get to England. Sadly, We don't have time to go down the rabbit hole of this oh-so-attractive tangent, as tempted as we are. For the purposes of our story, suffice it to say that this was not the first, but the sixth or seventh attempt to get some of these people to England. The signal that a boat would be arriving was to come via the radio on the illegal evening broadcast of Radio Oranya in the form of the first couplet of the Dutch national anthem, Wilhelmus. This short piece of music let them know that in the early hours of the next morning, between 4 and 5 a.m., a boat would be waiting for them at the beach. Within the circles of the organically formed resistance networks that had established themselves, more people knew about these attempts to get people to England than should have. When Goodhart found out through the parole network that a boat would be arriving early the next morning that he could possibly get on, he quickly packed up his stuff, including a bunch of parole-related content, to show the government in exile. He said goodbye to his wife and his son, went to the train station, and hopped on a train that would take him to The Hague, and hopefully towards a boat ride to England. So it was that just before 4am on the 18th of January 1942 that Franz Goodhart sat in a room of a house not far from the beach at Scheveningen, near The Hague, with six other people waiting for a boat that might whisk them away from the Nazi-occupied Netherlands. 
One of those present was another member of the editorial team of Het Parool, renowned Dutch politician and social democrat, Herman Viardi Beckman. Another was a young cadet named Wim Pasteloup, who worked for the Orderdienst, the Dutch military resistance, and was there to pick up a radio transmitter. At 4am on this freezing January morning, they made their way down to the beach. Two of the group, a man and woman, walked ahead, hand in hand, as if just lovers out for an early morning mid-winter stroll under Nazi curfew. The rest, including Goodhart, followed behind. The wind was strong and bit their faces and any exposed skin with an unrelenting cold. A thick icy foam had built up on the sand and although it was a moonless night, it all seemed brighter than they had hoped. Goodhart described it. We were going to a small pier where the little boat would come. There we lay flat on the ice. But that ice was whitish in colour and someone in the neighbourhood whose eyes were accustomed to the darkness would be able to see us well. There lay Beckman, five metres away, Pasteloo. So we lay there for a while. Three minutes are very long under such circumstances. They seem half an hour. The boat didn't arrive. They felt exposed. The two lookout lovers returned home and eventually Goodhart, Pasteloup and Viardi Beckman sought a hiding spot in a little bunker up on the beach while the two remaining men stayed at the pier waiting for the boat. In their preparations, they had discussed the comings and goings of the German Coast Guard patrol that would be changing over at 5am, so Goodhart's group in the bunker weren't that worried when they heard footsteps coming towards them. That worry, however, rocketed to extreme levels when those footsteps were suddenly right outside and were followed by angry shouts of Heraus! Goodhart, Viardi, Beckman, Pasteloup, they were all arrested and taken to the Schäfeningen prison. The two men down on the pier, however, did some quick and brutal thinking and slipped into the water under the pier. One can only imagine how absolutely freezing and terrifying this would have been, not knowing how long you could last, but also that you must remain hidden long enough for the soldiers to leave. After a grueling few minutes, they dragged themselves half-dead out of the water, but free. These two men managed to avoid being arrested again a couple of days later, and after that, made an epic journey via Belgium, France, Switzerland, Spain, and Portugal to go to England. When the shouts from the Nazis had come, Goodhart tried to bury a pocketbook containing lots of important contact information for people who were involved in the making of Het Parole. But it was quickly discovered. All the stuff that he had had on him that he so badly wanted to show the Dutch government in exile had now become highly incriminating evidence in the hands and the eyes of the authorities. They now knew that they had caught a very big fish indeed. It would later become known that, in the end, too many people had known about the endeavours to get on this boat, and a so-called V-man, 
an infiltrator of the resistance, had betrayed that confidence to the authorities. The Germans knew of the plan, listened for the signal, and had been following the group on the beach the whole time. Using agents, spies, and people to inform on resistance activities was essential to the occupation suppression of those activities. Vim Pustaloup, the cadet for the OD who had also been arrested, would later himself be forced to become a V-man. He had a Jewish fiancé, and when the Nazis discovered this fact, they used it to blackmail him. He would have to choose between the woman he loved or his country, and he chose the woman he loved. Pastelup's betrayal of the resistance would be discovered in early January 1943, and he was subsequently executed by members of the resistance. His body was thrown into a freezing and soon frozen over Amsterdam Canal, and was not discovered until the ice thawed in the March spring. The evidence found in Goodhart's pocketbook led to the arrests of printers and distributors of Het Parole, not only in Amsterdam, but also in other parts of the country. At the end of January and the beginning of February, one group, led by 37-year-old Wim Gertenbach, was rounded up in Zandvoort, and another, led by 58-year-old Vibo Lanz, was rounded up in The Hague. The group arrested in Zandvoort had been responsible for printing rather than stenciling Het Parole. They had been the first group to do so. The Hague group had been printing the parole, but had renamed it Freiheit as a method of confusing the authorities. The arrest of the main man for Freiheit spelled the end of Het Parole in The Hague. So, as the spring turned into the summer of 1942, the main characters in our story, Franz Goodhart, Jan Zwanenberg, and Rob Dahmer, as well as a large part of the wider parole network, were now imprisoned. They were held in Schäfeningen from March until July. The members of the Addix group, including Zwanenberg, Dahmer, and Melkman, were confronted with interrogation, through which they came to realize that the SD knew everything about their network. They were kept in their cells for most of the time. During their confinement, they were allowed strictly censored correspondence with their families. Imagine what you would write to your family in a situation such as this. You know that everything you put down will be read and reread by people doing jobs in a hierarchical structure of fascist censorship. And so you cannot say anything that will be deemed offensive to the social narrative being implemented by the regime. You know your family worries. What do you say to them? To your siblings? What would your mum be thinking, concerned for every minute of the day that you are not eating properly or are not in comfort? And your father, perhaps angry at himself for not having done better or angry and ready to bite back at the regime for having taken his child? What do you tell him? to ease his pain. In Schäfeningen, Zwanenberg wrote several times to his family, always followed by a section just for his girlfriend, Henny. In the short time they were allowed to compose their letters, Zwanenberg would always say that he was going well, 
in excellent health and hoping that they were too. He asked for clothes and whether his mother was still getting his welfare money and if she could send some. Over the months, his letters to them remained practical. Receiving playing cards was a big priority. The content is largely based on his asking and responding about the going-ons in the lives of his family and Henny. His family's well-being was clearly important to him. He remembered and regretted missing birthdays and gave good brotherly advice to his siblings to help his parents. Nonetheless, the letters were censored. There was little else he could really say. Even if he had wanted his family and Henny to know what he was going through, being held inside and subjected to regular torture and intimidation, there was no way that he could have. These young men were being punished for their right to free speech, and now, in the most extreme situation of their lives, they had zero freedom to speak about it. On the 17th of July, Zwanenberg, Dauma, and the others who had formed the Arix group were taken to Amersfoort, where they were brought together with the Zanford group, as well as those who had been arrested in The Hague, and in the end, they were joined by Goodhart himself. Here now were the final 23 people whose names would appear before a judge when they faced whatever court the Germans were going to try them in. Goodhart, Dalma, Zwanenberg, Melkmann, Wittmond, Kertenbach, Ross, Van Soest, Detello, Lanz, Snyders, De Jong, Pap, Van Leeuwen, Meinardi, Geressa, Rima, Fink, Robber, Farweig, Frank, Teufsen, and Barzilei. The members of the Arix group were pleased to leave Schäfeningen and arrive at Camp Amersfoort. They thought that they would get more fresh air. This might have been the case, but Amersfoort was a concentration camp run by the SS, and they would definitely not have a better time of it here. In Amersfoort, they were put to work chopping down trees and sawing wood. They would remain here until the middle of December, undergoing horrible abuse, thirst, starvation, and general deprivation of any rights that they might formerly have had. Goodhart would refer to it as the place of the devil. He said, I felt like I was dying. The worst thing is that you were completely starved. An endless series of humiliations and assaults have come down upon me. Conditions at the concentration camp in Amersfoort were so horrendous that they began to yearn for their cells back in Schäfeningen. Hank Rose recalled a story after the war about how one day they were forced to stand at attention in the centre of the camp from 4 in the morning until 9 in the evening because somebody from their barracks had escaped. For some, despite their own deprivation, They saw that other prisoners in the camp had it much worse than them. In early November 1942, they witnessed firsthand the brutality of the Nazi regime towards the Jews, when a fellow prisoner, the prominent social democratic politician, Mona de Miranda, was viciously and repeatedly assaulted. 
The Nazis often set up systems of self-regulation amongst prisoners in their camps. Block guards, made of prisoners who would thereby receive preferential treatment, upheld the enforcement of order on the rest. This saved money and instilled and maintained a hierarchy of authority that was built on fear. Upon his arrival in the camp, De Miranda had been attacked by these so-called couples, who branded him with a number seven, which they told him marked how many days he had left to live. He was then put into the Jewish section of the camp, but incurred repeated beatings, which ended with him being thrown into a construction pit. He then had bricks and sand thrown at and poured over him. In the end, De Miranda would die in the camp hospital, but not before suffering even more. When he had water, alternating between freezing and boiling, sprayed viciously all over him. The 23 facing trial for head parole must have seen these things happening and felt utterly helpless to do anything about it. Three days later, however, in the next letter to his family, Zwanenberg writes, I want you to know that my health is totally fine, and I hope the same is for you. He goes on to say, though, more explicitly, when telling them to write back as soon as possible, I am longing for news from you. One can only imagine how much all of them would have wanted to just be with their families, and not here, entering their 14th month in captivity, enduring and witnessing the brutality that was now their reality. The written correspondence between the prisoners and their families was the only contact they were able to have with the outside. Their families were permitted to write to them just once per month, so we can imagine how valuable each letter must have been for them. In today's world, we are so used to being in constant contact with everyone, everywhere. Imagine being the family member at home, having to wait a month to receive a reply to the questions that you'd asked of your imprisoned loved ones. Questions which must have been burning inside. For those in prison, there was always a lot of time to think. Understandably, the other major theme throughout Zwanenberg's letters home are his reminiscences of days gone by. He writes about how he spends a lot of time thinking about the past, remembering a vacation he took with his girlfriend the year before and dreaming about what the future might be like. He constantly reminds her and his family that what they are experiencing now might be difficult, but that time will go by quickly and that everything will all turn out okay in the end. He promises her that all the dreams and plans that they had made together in the past are going to come true, and that they will be together again soon. The fact is, however, that despite the largely positive attitude with which Zwanenberg was writing his letters, the exception being when he had a terrible toothache and was obviously in a lot of pain, the realities of incarceration would have been taking a massive mental and physical toll on him and everybody in there. Even more than the beatings, assaults, and slave labor, Camp Amersfoort was notorious for its hunger. Inmates were given very little to eat, and especially in the first years of the war, many prisoners literally starved to death. 
Its nickname was the Hunger Camp. Franz Goodhart would later recall how he saw Viardi Beckmann, with whom he had been arrested, in the camp. He said that he seemed to be 20 years older. He already had the infamous signs of starvation, bloated, festering feet, which didn't want to heal. He was mostly very apathetic, so there was no coherent conversation to be had with him. Another victim of the hunger was Rob Dalmer. By the end of his time in Amersfoort, Dalmer, who was two metres tall, or about six foot six, weighed only 45 kilograms, or just under 100 pounds. Even if the men had been able to tell their families and loved ones about these kinds of sufferings, is there any way that they would have wanted them to know? On Saturday, the 12th of December, 1942, the 23 men were suddenly rounded up and told that they were being transferred to a military prison, the Kriegswehrmacht Gefängnis in Utrecht. The men knew that they were being transported so that they could face trial there, but nevertheless, they were relieved at the news. Going to Utrecht meant leaving the hell of Amersfoort behind and hopefully getting some food. Of this moment, Goodhart wrote, Going to Utrecht meant that you might get a chance to have a visit and that you would be able to receive a parcel which might have some bread with meat or cheese in it, butter or sugar or some treat with which you would be able to silence the accursed, biting hunger, which would stop you from being able to sleep so much so that at night time you'd wrap a towel tightly around your belly, hoping to be less tormented. In an interview after the war, the youngest member of the 23, Carl Wittmond, who had been 17 when he was delivering parole, simply said about Utrecht that there we ate well. Hank Rose recalled that we were just skin on bones when we got there. The commandant said, here you will be treated as you behave. We will not speak about the camp where you have been. You can choose your own cellmate. It seemed like we'd been moved from hell to heaven. On Monday the 14th of December, the trial began. The Germans were paranoid about the potential of military secrets being leaked from the courtroom, so the trial was conducted in a big hall behind closed doors in a special court, the Sondergericht. Everybody who was present, including the guards and defence lawyers, were required to swear that they would never speak with others about what happened inside the court. The men were not allowed to have Dutch lawyers representing them. Instead, they were appointed German ones by the court, four of them in total for the 23 defendants. It must have been a bizarre experience. After 15 months of beatings, interrogation, starvation, forced labour, and a whole lot of just waiting and thinking about the oncoming adjudication. All of a sudden, here was the moment. But if the preceding 15 months had seemed endless, the next few days moved at a dizzying pace. Their defence lawyers were not permitted to read their case files, just an extract from the indictment. Goodhart said that they behaved towards the judges in the same way that an errand boy would to a director constantly jumping up, standing to attention and saying Heil Hitler and Jawohl. 
The defendants themselves were denied the right to even use pencils and paper in order to just take notes. After the months of misery, torture and starvation that they had endured, their memories were shot and it must have been difficult for them to keep up with everything. Over the five days of the trial, they were only twice given the opportunity to speak with their lawyers for a maximum of five minutes at a time. They were brought out in order of importance. Goodhart, being the prime suspect in the case, was first. They were charged with helping the enemy and producing anti-German writings. Despite everything that was going against them, however, the 23 didn't break under the pressure of it all. Goodhart described them as being, without exception, damn strong. They would have been well aware that in a fascist society, the state comes before the individual, so being charged with crimes against the state put them in pretty much the worst position imaginable. But still, according to all reports, they stayed as resilient as anybody could hope to be in such a situation. They kept their heads up in defiance, even when, on Friday 18th of December 1942, 17 of the 23 suspects, including Goodhart, Dalma, and Zwanenberg, were sentenced zum Tode, to death. Rob Dalma wrote a poem about the moment of sentencing in a diary that he kept. The first verse translates roughly as There we stood, hearing our sentence. Verurteilt zum Tode, rings through the hall. Controlled and unmoved, we stay standing. No muscle moves, and no face turns pale. The remaining six, Hank Rose, 18-year-old Carl Wittmond, and four others were ruled as abgetrennt which is to say they would be spared immediate execution and instead sent to a concentration camp. They were abgetrennt either because of their young age or their limited involvement in the actions of the group. It is strange to think, but there must have been some sense of relief realizing you were avoiding the death penalty even amidst the despair that some of your friends had not. But being sent to a concentration camp was no better and potentially worse. One of them, Jan Zwanenberg's brother-in-law, Jaap Frank, was Jewish. And they had all seen how Jews in the hands of the SS were treated in the camp at Amersfoort. In the Nazi prison system, different symbols were attached to prisoners that specified who they were. A yellow Star of David infamously denoted that one was a Jew. But other symbols, like downward-pointing triangles of different colours, were used. For example, homosexual men had to wear pink triangles, or criminals and convicts green triangles. Political prisoners, such as those working for Het Parole, bore a red triangle indicating such. Now, however, that 17 of them had been handed death sentences, they had also become a flight risk. The symbol on their clothes would change to reflect this, from a triangle to a circle. Prisoners with a circle were disallowed from going into the outer limits and workyards of the prisons. In the days after the ruling, the men were allowed a 10-minute visit from family. This was the first time in 15 months since their arrest that they were permitted a visit. Rob Dalma, the two-meter-tall but now 40-kilogram young man who had always been a positive rock and leader for those around him 
had certainly had his willpower tested during his imprisonment. He shared a cell with Hank Rose in Utrecht, and together the two men spent a day and a half before the family visit discussing with each other exactly what they were going to say. According to Rose, despite everything he had endured, Dalma was never broken. A few weeks after the visit, writing in his diary from his cell in Fucht concentration camp, we can see some of Dalma's strength as he reflected on this one and only visit he would ever get in prison. The following is a passage from that diary. Visit. After 15 months. For 15 months I haven't seen my parents, brother or sister. And now for the first time I can receive a visit? I'm happy, but when I think about the fact that in these 8 minutes I have to tell them that I've been sentenced to death. I get fear in my heart. Imagine if mother comes, how will I share this with her? I hope that father comes. Thoughts whirl like mists through my head while I walk restlessly around my cell. Will father come? Will mother come? What will they look like? Will mother have gotten lots of grey hair? Will father have become very bald? I yearn for their visit, but then I think again that it's better to see nobody. But then I hear that we will be transported again, and a shock goes through me as long as we're not transported again before I see mother and father. Since that moment, I know, yes, I yearn for you, mother and father. I yearn so much for you. I want to see you before I leave this place. Maybe I'll see you, father, or you, mother, for the last time in my life. Finally, the day arrives. It is father who has come. First, he gives me a present for my birthday. New glasses. Never in my life have I been so happy with a present. Never in my life, as long as I've lived. Many times since I've had my glasses in my hand and then thought about home. And then I have to tell him what my sentence was. Expressionless. Father sits there looking. God, my son, does this have to be the end? He sighs. A wave of emotion comes over me. I begin to speak quickly to distract the thoughts. What I said, I don't know anymore. Seven minutes is just so little. They're over, and I've still spoken so little with my father, heard so little from home. Here, father, a kiss from your Rob, and here one for mother, and one for Re, and one for Dirk. Farewell. It was maybe the last time I'll see you. Hold strong, because you have the big and difficult task of sharing this heavy news with mother and comforting her in her sorrow. Farewell. With a slam, the door shuts and makes a brutal end to the first and last visit. After a short return to Amersfoort, the men were then taken to the concentration camp at Fucht, nearby Den Bosch, in the country south. Things were no better in Fucht, however, than in Amersfoort. Vibo Lanz, the parole operator in The Hague, who, now at 59 years old, was the eldest of the group, wrote in his diary on the 26th of January that the number of deaths in the last two weeks have gone up to 87 from exhaustion. I am completely covered in lice. 
It would be understandable if the awfulness of their immediate situation led them to give up hope. They now knew their fate, but like Ari Uddix, they clung on to what positive things they could. An example of this is that two of the 17, Minority and Robber, were given permission to marry their girlfriends in Utrecht, which they did in late January. One could say that marriage is the ultimate expression of hope. Hope comes from different directions. Rumors spread through the camp about the progress of the war, about the Russians advancing from the east. On the 4th of February, Lanz also wrote of a rumor that 15 of the 17 were going to be transported to Germany, so it seemed like they would be given clemency. Two wouldn't. One of those was apparently Goodhart. The other wasn't known. That evening, the prisoners of the first parole process were called together. 13 names were read out. They were informed that they were to get on a bus the following morning. These names were Dalma, Zwanenberg, Melkmann, Kertenbach, Taylor, Lanz, Snyders, Van Leeuwen, Geresse, Minardi, Rima, Robber, Farvag. Franz Goodhart's name was not read out, which they saw as him being singled out as being unique and central to the operation. The three other names omitted, however, were Piet Pop, Ice de Jong, and Paul Fink. These three were nowhere near as central and important in Het Parole as Goodhart. The 13 men were given civilian clothes and, except for Melkman, who was Jewish, were invited to pray with a minister. They were also given a meal. All of this was ominous. But surely, if they were to be executed, Goodhart would be amongst them. Lanz said this was a strange situation. We were in the dark about what was going to happen to us. Death or Germany. He was convinced that they were all going to be pardoned and sent to Germany. When they were all gathered that night, hundreds of men in the barracks, he stood up to address everyone there and gave voice to his optimism which he said was shared. He recited a speech from Multatuli, a.k.a. Edward Dowes Decker, who had been an ardent socialist, working-class writer from Amsterdam in the late 1800s. After this, the men went to bed, unaware of what exactly would be awaiting them, when they woke up on the 5th of February, 1943. Thanks for listening to Free and Fearless. This has been the second of a three-part series. Be sure to tune in next week to episode three, Execution and Escape. This has been researched, written, and produced by Julian Smith and Joe Wegasani. We are Republic of Amsterdam Radio. For more information on this series, as well as other projects we have created, go to republicofamsterdamradio.com Thanks to Stichting Democracy and Media for making this possible.